All right, well, we want to get right into our study this morning. Uh, we've taken a break from our study in John for a while, just to observe Easter and some other things, but we're going to get right back in it today. So if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to go through John chapter 5. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, just want to remind you again, please make sure to stop by at the community center outside. We have a great gift for you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible here with you today, go ahead and get the attention of one of our ushers. And as I do that, sorry, dude. Uh, junior hires, you may go with Alex, the very important ministry back there. Never forget you guys. Um, but if you don't have your Bible, make sure you raise your hand and one of our ushers, ushers will get you one. We have this uh, thing we do in our youth group where we make sure that every single person has a Bible before we get started. And uh, if they don't, they have to sit next to somebody that does. And so you guys are grown adults. I'll let you figure it out. But uh, let's go ahead and get started. We also have the words up here too. So John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. I'm going to read it slow because it gets a little confusing. But I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the heart, or you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you have received the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? Let's pray. Uh, Father, there is a lot of believing and bearing witness and Father and sent, and uh, this can get really confusing, Father, if we don't dive into it, God. And so just help us uh, digest what you're trying to say to us, God. Uh, Father, remind us that we are in dire need of you always, God, that we are never, we've never reached the point where we cannot look to you, God, that we've never reached the point where we don't need you, God, that our lives depend on you being who you say you are. So, God, uh, show us who you are today. Uh, break, uh, break the ceiling. Just blow the roof off of what we know about you, God. Bring us to the next level in our understanding of who you want to be in our lives and uh, what you mean to this world, God. So we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. A lot of back and forth, right? He sent me all this stuff, and so hopefully we can make some sense of it today. Uh, one thing to remember is that Jesus is talking to Jewish men, okay? Not only is he talking to Jewish men, but he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to men that have studied the Bible, studied the Word of God a great deal. Uh, Paul, for example, was a Pharisee. And it's believed that Paul, or any other person training to be a Pharisee, would have lived, uh, would have lived 15 years old, and at that time he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, in two languages by heart. That's just a start. And so this is how much they know the Bible. And we're not talking about um, a life verse, or we're not, you know, the easy ones like John 3, 16, or 29, 11, Jeremiah 29, 11. We're talking about the books of the Bible that are hard to memorize, right? The books of the Bible that have a lot to them. And so there's great study. And Jesus is making this crazy statement. These are the most religious people in the world that pride themselves on knowing God, understanding his word, and he says you're ignorant when it comes to knowing God. Right? The same type of language that eventually gets him put on the cross. Uh, he, he, it's the most offensive thing he probably could have said to this group, is you do not know God. The people looked at them because they, they knew God. The people gave them glory. They, they, they looked up to them because they knew that they were godly men. And here's Jesus saying, you don't know anything about him. Verse 30 says this in John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Right from the beginning, Jesus is showing that he's dependent on the Father, that there is nothing that he can do without, that's outside of the Father's will, and that the reason he was sent to earth was to fulfill the Father's will. And you know, he speaks briefly about this judgment, right? I, I tell the kids in our youth group all the time, if, if, you've been, if you've been accused of murder and you've never killed anybody, you probably have nothing to worry about because it'll probably work itself out in the end, right? You can probably say, well, I can say that I am not a murderer because I know that I haven't killed anybody. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, my judgment is just. My judgment is true because I know I'm sent to the Father. I know where I've come from. I know what he's called me to do. Everything that Jesus did while he was on earth, he did in a submission to the Father. But right after that, he stopped speaking about his judgment. And he says something really interesting, something that's kind of common sense for us now. He says, if I alone, in verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. When he says about bearing witness to himself, he's actually quoting scripture. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So basically it's saying, I can't walk up to somebody and say, um, he killed somebody. And then they're going to arrest him, throw him in jail, and then he's done. Right? They need more witnesses. They need more people that said, yes, he did. They need more people that, that have witnessed what had actually happened. And that's what we're going to uncover here in this, the end of chapter 5. Uh, verse 32 says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And this is what we're going to get into. Chapter 5, he will begin to list witnesses that prove he's the son of God, and in doing so, you and I will be brought face to face with some things that are really hard to hear. First, what is a witness? 
Well, the word witness, John uses this word more than any other gospel. It's, for, it's in this gospel 47 times. And so obviously this witness is, is really important to what John is wanting to say about Jesus. And we remember that, that John wrote this book so that we may believe that Jesus was the son of God. So what is a witness? A witness is called upon to give their account of what they have seen. They are not called to argue the case, but they are asked to give an account of what they know to be true. Jesus calls on four of them. Four witnesses to prove that he is God in the flesh, that he is who he says he is, that he's the fulfillment of scripture, that he was here in the beginning, he was here, and he'll be here past the end, the Alpha and the Omega. First one, witness number one, verse 33, it says, and you sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist was his first witness that Jesus calls. And we can even imagine like a court case, right? Like in comes in John the Baptist, and everyone's going to look at him because he's got camel hair. He's been out in the wild. He's eating bugs. And it's like, really? You're calling on this guy? But when we were reading the Bible, I mean, this is what I've learned more than anything in doing this study is that everything points to Jesus. Everything, Old Testament, New Testament, everything that we read is pointing to this one man. And here's John, the first witness. In John 1, uh, verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet said in Isaiah. I mean, that's amazing. He's the one calling in the darkness. Think about that. The, the, the person breaking the ice almost. We, we do this... Uh, keep saying we in our youth group. I've been in youth group for like 20 years, I guess. Um, but uh, we have this one, I love it, because uh, when I was nervous, I would always do this study, but I would turn the lights off in the room, and I'm like, okay, cool, they're not going to look at me, right? And what we do is I'd have them, I had everyone stand up, and then I'd say, in complete darkness, I would say, now everyone move four chairs back, right? And then you'd hear rustling and bustling and people getting injured and said, okay, now everyone move to the chair on your left, right? And then you'd hear people crying or whatever was going on. And, and, and then I'm thinking, shoot, this is junior hires in the dark, high schoolers in the dark. I better turn the lights on, right? Um, you turn the lights on and everybody's scattered. The world is a mess and, and the room is a mess. And it's exactly what John the Baptist is speaking into. He's calling in the darkness. He's the light in the darkness, Here's uh, in John 1, 29 verses, uh, or yeah, chapter 1, verses 29 and 20, 30, through, uh, through 34, sorry. It says, on the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is one about whom I said, after me comes a man who is greater than I am, because he has existed before me. I did not recognize him but I came baptizing with water so that he could be revealed to Israel. Then John testified. I saw the spirit descending like a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have both seen and testified that this man is the chosen one of God. I mean, just to, again, imagine that being said in a court case, that this is him. This is the man that I've been told is coming. This is the man that will take away the sin of the world. He is witnessing. He is a witness of who Jesus is. And it's a great witness to have, right? Not only was John a little weird, 
But again, he was bold. He didn't care, obviously, what people thought of him. The other thing is he had a great following, right? Uh, I was reading one sermon and it said that he was kind of like a rock star at that time because he was going against huge establishments, huge religious establishments. And he was this crazy guy, but people were interested in what he was saying. So great witness to have. But look what Jesus says about that witness in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He says that John's testimony wasn't for him. John's testimony was for us. It was on our behalf. It was him calling us to the light, stopping us in our sin, saying, repent because someone is coming. I love how Jesus calls John the Baptist a lamp. He calls him a burning and shining lamp. A lamp is something that holds light, right? It makes it possible for light to be placed anywhere in a dark room. It, it's not like the sun that completely vanishes the light. It makes all the light disappear, but it can be brought from place to place, and it'll light up a little place. It'll, it'll take darkness away for a while. He calls him a lamp. So that's the first witness, John the Baptist. Our second witness are the signs and the miracles of Jesus. In verse 36, it says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus did many, many things. John even, even notes that there are things that, if we were to record everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to record everything that he did. He did so many things. In John 10, uh, it's funny, these, these Jewish men, they kind of corner Jesus, and they say, uh, John 10, verse 24, they say, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Like, how long are you going to keep us on the edge of who you are? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Later on in verse 37, he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There's, there's four characteristics about the works of Jesus that are amazing. There are things, like the things that he's done, the things that he did, they aren't the things that you and I would have done, right? One is the number, like I said earlier, John 21, 25. Uh, there are also many things that Jesus did. We were one of them, uh, were, if were every one of them were to be written, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that, the world, uh, that would be written. Um, so there were many of them, many, many works. Number two is their greatness. Uh, they were not little, but mighty interferences with the, the course of nature. Jesus didn't come in and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal your ingrown toenail for you, okay? He didn't come up and say, um, you have a cough? Here, let's get rid of it. Now he came and he attacked blindness. He said, this man who was blind will now see. This man who was dead will now be alive. This person who had a demon will now be set free from those things, right? He, he took lame people and he allowed them to walk, 
Right? These are major, major things that normal people just wouldn't be able to do. Another publicity. They were generally not done in a corner. Right? We have a few that were done in private. But most of them were done before witnesses. And often before enemies, in front of enemies. Like uh, last time I spoke, we talked about the man being healed at the pool, right? And, and immediately when they saw this man healed, the Pharisees knew that something was up. Who did it? Who healed him? And it's on the Sabbath, so they're, really, they're in really big trouble. So Jesus did this so that, so that people would notice these things. But the other thing is the, the character of their works, of his works. There are always works of love, mercy, and compassion, helpful and beneficial to man and not barren exhibitions of power. He doesn't say, everybody gather around, look what I'm about to do. I, I tell Roxy this all the time. If I could sing like Roxy, you guys would hate me because I would be singing everywhere I go. I just lean to somebody and say, hey, do you want to hear me sing? Right? Like, I would be doing that all the time. And that's not what Jesus does. Right? That's what you and I would do with that kind of power. That's what we would do. We'd say, how, how can I have this make me some money? How is it going to benefit me? But he doesn't. He wields his power, yields his power, and he walks with it gracefully. He walks with it with mercy and in love and compassion. So the signs and miracles of Jesus were great witnesses to him being the fulfillment of, the, of Scripture. Our third witness, the Father. Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Listen, this is, this is awesome. Matthew three sixteen and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Talk about a witness from God. He cracks open the skies and everyone in attendance, and he says, This is my Son. How could you be there and not believe? How could you see that? And not just get to your knees and say, I'm going to do whatever you say. Thank you for being here. You are special. He cracks open the skies and he witnesses and he says, this is my son. John 5, 37. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This is different. Okay, he started with witnesses, and now all of a sudden he's saying, "Wait, you don't know God. You've never seen Him, you've never heard Him, and His Word is not abiding in you." Okay, so not only has he publicly humiliated them, right, saying the most offensive thing that he can say probably to these men, but now he's saying, "You do not know God. You're not even close." He says, you don't know God and you haven't seen him because his word is not abiding in you. How could you possibly believe me when you don't even believe the one who sent me? Jesus was speaking to men that probably had more scripture memorized than this entire room combined. And I got to be careful saying that because some of you have known me since I was 14. And I know that you know a lot about the Bible. Right? But these men were professionals. These men devoted their life to learning the scriptures. But he says, you are not abiding in the word. 
I think what Jesus is beginning to do is he kind of turns the ship a little bit. And he says, not only are these witnesses of who I am, but let me show you how who I am reveals who you are. And that's something that no long, no matter how long we've been going to church, no matter how well we've served, or how the, with any kind of programs that we come up with, or with anything, every single one of us has a duty, has this obligation to constantly look at these things in our life. The things that Jesus is about to reveal to the Pharisees, they're hard for us to kind of look at. So let's ask the question, is his word abiding in me? Is his word abiding in you? What does that even mean? I'll tell you. It says dwelling in you, that it's dwelling in you, that it's continuing to remain without being faded or lost, not just being remembered, but being lived out and obeyed. You know, we've been getting ready for this DMD thing, Disciple Making Disciples, and uh, it goes along with our Timothy initiative, and um, Pastor David Nouns came up here, and he just, I mean, it's so simple, but what he said kind of rocked my world. He said, go out, baptize, and teach them to obey. How hard is that? How hard is it to teach somebody to obey? That's what Jesus is asking them. He's saying, are you obeying? Is the word abiding in you? Because you can know it and you can quote it. But the Great Commission isn't go out and understand God's word. Teach them God's word. It's teaching them to obey. And that's hard. Because in order to teach someone to obey, you have to be obeying yourself. So the first question is, is God's word abiding in you? Are you hungry for it every day? You get excited for it when you wake up. Is it what puts you to sleep? Does it abide in you? John 5, 39 and 40, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What he's saying is you read God's word, which points to me as the fulfillment but you don't see it and you don't believe it because you don't want to. Searching the scriptures. I heard a great analogy for searching the scriptures. A lot of us will read, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. We'll read a, a, we'll read a chapter in the Bible and we'll say, okay, we're done. Now I can go get breakfast or now I can call somebody or now I can do what I need to do, right? And <clears throat> searching the scriptures is not just overlooking one chapter, right? Has anyone ever walked a trail around here, Right? Okay, cool. Okay, two people, great. Um, when you walk a trail, there's a beginning and there's an end, right? You walk the trail, you get back to your car, and okay, okay, cool, we walk the trail. That's not searching scripture. You didn't search on that trail. You just calmly walked along with what it had to do. It was already set out for you, and you just kind of went from beginning to end. Searching scripture is like going on a trail and overturning every broken twig, every rock, and saying, who was here before me? Why was this place put here? Why did it decide to go left and not right? You're searching along this trail, finding, searching through the scriptures. The way the guy explained it is, say if you're on this trail and your contact falls out, right? You don't just keep looking towards the end, but you're going to stop and look around you and search for that contact. He's saying you search the scripture. That's how close they looked at these scriptures, and yet they still don't see Jesus. 
But God's word points to him from the beginning to the end. When the, the promise with uh, Eve, the, the seed of Eve crushing the serpent's head, the promise of, that was given to Abraham about all the nations, right? Uh, the sacrificial systems of the holy tabernacle, everything pointing back to Jesus. Okay, I'm going to do something that you guys are probably not going to like right now. We're going to read a whole chapter together in Isaiah, right? Is that okay? Okay, well, I, I hope so because I got it on the screen, so we're going to go for it. A whole chapter. But th- I want you to do this. If you guys read Isaiah, you know that there are some cr- really cool things that he has to say. But as we're reading this chapter, Isaiah 53, I want you to have a picture of Jesus in your mind. Because this is who he's talking about. This is who he's pointing to. Jesus on the cross. Jesus as our Savior. Jesus as the one who came lowly to die for us. Isaiah 53. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one of whom men, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And he was esteemed, they esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. He, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And, his for, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of many people, they made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death, although he had, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their inequities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. Thousands of years before he was born. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. And they're missing it. 
He's right in front of them, and they're missing it. And they're saying, no, you can't be who, he's, who the Bible's talking about. You can't be who our God is talking about. But there's a problem with that. Right, some of us even do it, or we know people that do it at least, that they take what the Bible says, and they'll take the comfortable, and they'll take the things that are easier to do, and when it comes down to making a really hard decision or doing something or seeing something in the Bible that's really hard to obey, they say, well, I don't agree with that. Here's the problem. If we don't agree with God's word, we're saying one of two things. We're saying that God's word isn't the highest standard of truth and that there is another that we should be judging it against or our experiences are more truthful than what this book has to say. Jesus is looking at them saying, everything you've read is true, but it's about me. What would you do if you lived like the Bible was true? How would your life look different if all the peace that the Bible promises was offered to you and that was true? What would you do if all the comfort that the Bible offers us is true? How would you love people? Because the Bible says to love your neighbor. The Bible says to be selfless. The Bible says all of these things that are really hard to do. What would our life look like if everything we read we believed to be true? Verse 41, he says, I do not receive the glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I love that. He's saying, I don't need the approval of men. I do not need glory from men. Uh, it's not like, you know, we, we heard earlier that uh, John baptized Jesus, right? It's not like this ordinary man walked up to a swim party and was like, what's going on? They're like, dude, you're the son of God. Really? All right, let's go. It's not what happened. He knew who he was. He knew what he'd been called to do. He knew who he'd been sent from. And he came into this world to fulfill the will of the Father. He didn't need glory and approval from any man. Paul says this in Galatians 1.10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We can't seek the approval of men and be in God's will at the same time. It hinders our relationship with them. I mean, it would be great, though, right? I mean, and we do it sometimes. We still are guilty of it. But here's another question for us. Is, have we stopped seeking the glory of men so we can serve Christ? There's two sides to this coin, though, right? There's one side where, uh, like me, wanting to get my picture taken at Springfest, right? Was I doing that so I can get in the Mercury? No. But do we serve so that we'd be recognized? Do we serve so that we can be appreciated? Do we serve so that we're needed? Or do we serve because God's called us to serve? The other side of the coin is, do we not share our, our faith? Do we not evangelize because we're afraid of what men would think? Are we so afraid that the glory might run away if we opened our mouth about Jesus. The glory from men would run away if we talked about who he was. There's two sides of the coin. Are we worried about what men think? Because like Paul says, if we are, 
that we can't serve Christ. It's one or the other. Verse 43. He says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive the glory from the one, or when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Someone comes in their own name, right? What does it mean to come in my own name? It means, hi, I'm Joe from San Jose. How are you? Right? Immediately, we have every right to say, I like him or I don't like him, right? Have you guys ever been around people you don't like? Of course not. It's Twin Oaks, right? Um, there's just some people we don't get along with, right? And uh, we can make that judgment, right? It may not be right or, or maybe wrong, but... Uh, we have the ability to make that judgment, to say, you know what, I don't like him. He comes in his own name, I just don't like who he is, forget him. But if someone comes in the name of God, we have no choice but to accept that person. We don't have the right to say, oh yeah, Jesus, maybe. He's a really nice guy. And that's what we hear most of the time, right, from people who haven't yet to believe him. They say, oh, he was a great teacher, good guy good carpenter, good leader. Like, he's all those things. But, uh, son of God, I don't know. Again, is what do you believe? If he comes in the name of God, then we have to believe him. Not only does he have all these witnesses, but he's saying, I have been sent from the Father. The other thing about coming in his own name, right, he says you'll receive one that comes in his own name, but you won't receive me and I come in the name of the Father. Check this out. This is kind of what blew me away. Another thing that blew me away about, about this study is um, you guys ever gone to Build-A-Bear? All right? It's really expensive. Don't do it. Um, but when, this is super corny, uh, when Roxy and I first got married, uh, we got back to work and we worked at C28 in Valley Fair and right down below was a Build-A-Bear shop. Right? And me trying to be all cute, I was like, Let's go make our first child, like teddy bear-wise, okay? Um, and uh, we go down there, and we named him, right? We got him an A's outfit because we wanted him to be a good baseball player. Um, number one in the AL. Um, we named him, got him an outfit, right? We got him cleats. We got him a baseball bat. We got him a hat. Like, we got all these great things, right? And it was so weird how all of our dreams and all of our hopes for the child that we, I mean, he has the same name as Noah now. Um, I mean, you even get a birth certificate and everything, right? Noah King, and you, you can look it up, and it's really, it was really fun. Um, but we got them all the best things, right? And it, all of our hopes and dreams were, man, I hope he's just like this bear, right? And I don't even know where the bear is today, but... Um, that was our hope. That was what we wanted to create. That was what we wanted. If we would have went to build a savior, right? If we would have got the savior that we wanted, it would have been nothing like Jesus. Our selfishness wouldn't have allowed us to get a savior like Jesus. We would have picked a man who was triumphant, who was buff. The kids say he has swagger. We would have picked a man that was a leader of armies who can destroy nations with, with one word. 
give the order and they're gone. Right? A rich man. You know why? Because he, we would have wanted him to be everything that we would have wanted to be. We would have wanted our Savior to be just like us. But that's not the one we got. When we're building a Savior, we wouldn't pick a cross. We wouldn't pick death, blood, a carpenter. We wouldn't pick a man who was beaten, who was loving, who was soft. We wouldn't pick a grave. We would have picked someone exactly like us. We got a savior, not that we wanted, but the one that we needed. We got Jesus. The one that came lowly. You know, the other reason we don't pick a savior like Jesus is because if he died, what does that mean for us? If our king died, our savior is dead. What does that mean about me? Right? We don't want the Savior that's like, follow me and pick up your cross and die to yourself. Like, um, we don't think we picked you. We picked someone like Caesar. Or we picked someone like, like Xerxes. We want someone like that. But we got the Savior that we needed, the one that chose us. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you, or there is another one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That's our fourth witness is Moses, the man responsible for Again, the first five books that these men claim to know and understand and memorize and to live their lives by. The whole while, Moses is like, he's right there. Jesus is saying, Moses would have told you that you've missed the mark. Moses, Moses would have shared with you that I am the one because I was there with Moses. I was in the beginning and I was in the end. You know, and... Again, in the beginning of this message, I didn't realize this really until last night. But in the beginning of this message, I thought Jesus was just bringing it to them, right? Look how stupid you are. Look how slow you are. Look how selfish and arrogant you are, right? And he, he brings out all these witnesses that they already believe in. He says, look, they're pointing to me. He reveals things in their heart that where they, they know they're falling short. Why? Why did he waste his time? Why make this huge, long, why put together this huge argument for the Pharisees? What I realize is his heart breaks for them just as much as it breaks for us. That they were so close. And he's not angry, right? He wasn't, he wasn't coming in hopes to drive a wedge between him and the Pharisees. They already hated him. He wasn't like my son who does what you're not supposed to do and likes it. But his heart was breaking for them. And he's saying, please believe. Because I am the Savior that you're looking for. 
And that's the last question I have for us is one, is he your savior? That could be whether you've accepted him or not. That's on one level. But on the second level, if he is, do you treat him with the respect that he deserves? Is he held in the reverence? Is he amazing to you? Is he the kind of thing in your life that you cannot live without? Or is he merely just a character in a book that we don't search? Jesus looked at every single one of these Pharisees and he saw you and me. He saw people that are trying. He saw people that might read their Bible and know God's word, but what he wanted was their hearts. And he's saying, if I can reveal how far your heart is away from me, then maybe you might become desperate for me. Maybe you'll be so desperate that you'll reach out to me. Guys, that's the, that's the challenge I have for us today is don't be content with where you're at with God. Every day, ask yourself, is he abiding in me? Am I abiding in his word? Is he my savior today? Do I believe everything that he says? Does this book guide my life? Not so that I can, again, put a mark on my church attendance sheet, but because God and Jesus desperately want to know me. I had a, a spiritual mentor, and I met with him yesterday, and um, he said something. He didn't know what I was speaking about, but it's uh, Daniel 11, verse 32. And it says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And that challenged me. The people that know their God shall stand firm and take action. Are we standing firm and are we taking action? Can he's desperately calling us for our hearts to be closer to him. He can care, well, I don't want to say he can care less what's up here. But I know that he's more worried about where our hearts are at. So if we know him, stand firm and take action. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much, God, that this isn't um, a sermon that's beating us over the head or, or something that we walk away from knowing or feeling like um, you're just displeased with us, God, that you're not happy with where we're at, Father. But like these Pharisees, you could have left them to their own demise. You could have left them with their own understanding. But you're desperately pleading with them to know you. You are desperately pleading with them to say, believe in me, have the faith in me. God, it's your will that not one should perish, God. So today, God, I pray that as we go about our day, one, I pray that you would be our Savior, that we would look to you and know that we are saved from hell because you've died on a cross and that we've been forgiven of our sin. God, if there's someone in this room that doesn't believe that or doesn't understand that, Father, I pray that they would find someone today and ask questions about that. Father, I pray that we would abide in your word holding it close to us, not letting it fade away, not just remembering, but obeying it, Father. God, that we would believe what your word says about you and what it says about us. Father, I pray that we would no longer seek the glory of men, 
but that we would seek the glory from the one and only God. God, help us with these things. These things are so hard because our selfish, our selfish nature doesn't just want us to let him do it. Want us to let him do it. It's hard to do, Father God. But we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us so that we may have life in you. 